You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Oni Afwako. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, May 31st, 2022. Later in the program, Big Talk producer Michael Glab speaks with Cole Nelson, a graduate student at the IU Media School and member of the IU Graduate Workers Coalition. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. But first, our local headlines. On May 25th, the Bloomington City Council Committee of the Whole discussed a request to vacate an alley segment downtown Senior zoning planner Eric Grulick presented on the development of the Johnson Creamery and shared the site plans of the petitioner and founder of Peerless Development, Michael Cordaro. So they are requesting uh, that this alley be vacated in order to allow for the project to be constructed. Um, I've got a few exhibits of the elevations for the buildings uh, or the building that was shown. Uh, This is looking at the proposed building from the Beeline Trail. Um, So the Beeline Trail is in the foreground here. Uh, You can obviously see the smokestack on the left side of the site. Um, Again, another rendering from the Beeline Trail of the proposed building. Um, So the building that was approved is a five-story building, um, 51 dwelling units. Uh, It had some underground parking as well as some surface parking. Um, This is a view of that building from 8th Street. uh, And then looking down the north-south alley, And then this rendering here is looking at the east-west alley. This is the portion of the alley that is requested to be vacated. Um, So this is the south side of the building um, and a smokestack there in the the background. Um, So with that, uh, the planning commission uh, approved the petition, as I mentioned, subsequent to the uh, vacation of the alley request, um, which is what the petitioner is here tonight to uh, um, discussing here with the council. So with that, I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions. Corporation Council Beth Kate said that in exchange for the right-of-way vacation, the corporate council recommends the council ask Peer- Peerless Development to provide a few things in return. Uh, we are uh, recommending that the council uh, seek $250,000 to $300,000 uh, from Peerless to fund and maintain public art that would celebrate the historic uh, Johnson Creamery District and the stack, uh, along with an easement to allow installation of that art uh, uh, once it's approved by the HPC as needed. And uh, this is an optional thing, but if they're not doing anything with the bricks that come off of the stack uh, when they are taking it down to 60 feet as part of the unsafe building order, uh, those might be able to be incorporated into an artwork uh, and or have something else done with them, uh, including potentially even fundraising um, for public art. Kate outlined the reasons the administration is recommending that they ask Peerless for the funds to make a public art installation to commemorate the Johnson Creamery smokestack. 
Um, so why are we suggesting this to council? Uh, first, we think it's warranted. Um, as I'll say more about public benefit in just a second, but the right-of-way certainly provides substantial commercial benefit to Peerless. Uh, my understanding is this is about a $10 million project and a conservative estimate of their annual rent is about $800,000, um, could be more uh, than that. Um, building nine or maybe 10 feet, as Eric was saying, into this 12-foot right-of-way just heightens the public concerns about integrating that new building with the historic structures. You saw some photos of that. And the creamery and the smokestack are iconic. They're iconic structures in Bloomington, uh, and we think that they deserve a world-class project to, uh, to really reflect that uh, and would like to bring in uh, artists who could be able to do the sort of public art project that we have seen elsewhere. Uh, the amount that we're asking for is in line with, and in fact, less than some other recent art projects associated with private building, like the Graduate Hotel. Um, it's reasonable uh, as an amount if you look at their rents. Uh, that amount is not quite uh, one third of one year's rent, or around a third of one year's rent, depending on 250 versus 300,000. Um, Peerless has been receiving income from uh, the stack and uh, tenants in the creamery. Um, and the thing that uh, we're asking for here, this is a fixed and definite commitment. It's basically an amount of money that would be paid in order to assist in realizing a public benefit in exchange for the right-of-way vacation. Uh, I think earlier when we had suggested to the Historic Preservation Commission that as the stack gets taken down to 60 feet, Peerless come back with a plan on how to commemorate the stack appropriately. They objected strongly to that. They have objected to really um, sitting down and talking through any options with respect to uh, uh, commemoration of the historic district. Um, but, uh, but their concern uh, was that uh, they didn't want to agree to something that was open-ended. Um, before the HPC, so a condition that they come back and then start a process with the HPC. Um, this is really saying, look, uh, you will be gaining a valuable public asset. Uh, it's appropriate for uh, the public benefit um, to be considered here uh, in terms of what will the public benefit uh, with this right-of-way vacation. And uh, that commitment can be very definite because the money would then be used by the city to go ahead and do what Peerless has actually suggested we do, which is if the city cares about uh, commemoration or public art in connection with this historic district, then we should do it. Um, and so we would actually then take that money and go ahead and uh, engage in a public art project along the lines that you all have seen uh, elsewhere. Kate explained that to vacate a public parcel, the decision must be made with the public interest in mind. Petitioner Michael Cordaro spoke saying that Peerless Development does not have the additional funds to meet the demands that Kate suggested. Good evening, everybody. Um, you know, I, I just want to add that uh, we, we pushed back against this proposal initially, not for you know the purpose of not wanting to do good or or see something um, you know that would commemorate the historic significance of the smokestack. Um, it's purely for budgetary reasons. We do not have any extra money. Our our project as it is is over three million dollars over budget. 
Um, so we don't know if this is even going to happen. Add to that, you know, that's not taking into account uh, $350,000 to uh, repair the smokestack, which we've been ordered to do. Um, the loss of income and value by losing AT&T as a tenant, the loss of value via COVID uh, from losing office tenants in the Johnson Creamery building. We are so far underwater on this project, adding another $250,000 cost is not, we're, we're sitting here struggling to figure out how are we going to even pay for this uh, demolition and uh, repair of the smokestack. We can't get this project done this year because of all the delays that all of this process has caused, uh, caused us. We were counting on a construction loan to help uh, fund that portion of the uh, repair. So we're sitting here in a major bind, and now we're being asked to contribute another two hundred and fifty to $300,000 for artwork. And that just feels, you know, it's, it's undoable on our, uh, on our side. The council will hold an official vote on the alley vacation request at their next meeting on June 1st. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on May 25th, Board of Health Director Penny Caudill said that the county is currently at a low level of community spread. She noted that the rate of transmission is relatively high, but the number of hospitalizations has remained low. Caudill also said there has been an increase in COVID-19 vaccinations. We have also, there's a little bit of good news. We've seen a little bit of an increase in vaccinations, and so we're pleased about that. Some of that is those 5 to 11-year-olds getting boosters, but we're seeing other individuals uh, come in to get their first dose or booster dose, so we are seeing some increase there, and we're very pleased about that. Cottle has also addressed monkeypox and the public health issue of gun violence. And other than that, I, you know, monkeypox is, I think people are hearing about that. That is not something new, uh, but there are investigations ongoing into the current cases that have been identified. So you can stay tuned for more information on that. And then the last thing that I would say, and maybe this should have been the first thing, but Gun violence and trauma has to remain on our list of challenges to address, uh, not just from a public health issue, but all the way around. I am very, very sad for the families and the communities that are, again, dealing with this issue. Thank you. Highway and Transportation Director Lisa Ridge asked the commissioners to approve a matching grant with Indiana DOT for highway paving projects. Commissioner Penny Githens commented on Ridge's work to make the repaving of the roads more routine. I just want to make sure that um, our residents understand that you have now created sort of a grid so that every 20 years or so something gets repaved. It's on a schedule now. It's not just willy-nilly in terms of throwing a dart at the board to see which road gets paved, right? Ridge responded saying that they take a lot of factors into account to predict when roads will need to be repaved. However, weather conditions like freezing and thawing can adjust the plans. Exactly. Uh, we are required to have an asset management plan um, for every highway department in the county. That's submitted to um, Purdue at LTAP and then it's submitted to NDOT. 
Um, we are to use that for the uh, purpose of um, inspecting a road, giving it what we call a PACER rating of one through 10. Um, so we play a lot, a lot of factors go into that traffic counts, um, truck traffic, um, and then we rate the condition of that road. Then we build it into our paving um, program to where we get onto a continuous rotation. So it's an it's a ongoing building process um, to build this program to where we can um, have a plan of moving for, forward and not just um, react. Um, but again, another part of that that plays into changing a paving program is uh, the weather conditions in the winter and the spring. Um, that can completely change everything if we get a lot of freeze and thaw, uh, which is a lot of damage to the roadway. So that can adjust our plan a little bit. But um, again, working with the community crossing matching grant programs helped us a lot to be able to to be able to plan for upcoming projects. The commissioners approved the matching grant unanimously. The commissioners also approved three other highway paving projects presented by Ridge. During public comment, Monroe County resident Travis Spearbach asked Ridge if the work being done on Lynch Road was going to patch up potholes or if they would be doing a full paving project. Ridge said that they're doing prep work now, but will be doing a full paving job on the road. Got you. I, I think there was just uh, some miscommunication. I think maybe even some of the workers had maybe had uh, insinuated that it was just patching, but um, but that was what we had thought. I think that's what you had left a message for my wife last year that it, that it was on the docket for this year to get paved. So we just wanted some clarity because it is definitely a need. It is a definitely in disrepair and um, has been needing to be paved for for several years now. So I appreciate you getting that going for us. The next commissioner's meeting will be held on June 1st. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of Kite Line, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. Kite Line airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. A 31-year-old Rikers Island inmate named Mary Yehuda died after overdosing on drugs at the Rose M. Singer Center, the women's jail commonly known as Rosie's. She is the fifth Rikers Island detainee to die this year. She was a kind, loving, intelligent person invested in her recovery. She was focused on her future of giving back to the community. It's devastating that someone who's so young and had experienced so much trauma has died in custody. She was hopeful for her future, said Tahani Dunn of the Bronx Defenders, which represented Yehuda. Yehuda spent much of her youth growing up in foster care and was homeless by 13. She struggled with substance abuse and homelessness, Dunn said, adding that Yehuda had worked hard at recovery with little support. Yehuda's brother was killed in the Bronx in March 2020. 
It really is a travesty and we need to figure out how to do better as a society and as a community to stop these deaths in custody, Dunn said. Advocates said Yehuda's death is the first involving a detainee at the jail commonly known as Rosie's since Leilene Polanco died in June 2019 after an epileptic seizure in solitary confinement. 17 corrections officers faced discipline for breakdowns in preventing Polanco's death. Yehuda's death comes one day after the city submitted a plan to a Manhattan federal judge detailing how the corrections department will regain control of Rikers Island. Federal prosecutors have said they're mulling over a court request for outside leadership to take over the chronically dysfunctional jails. The deaths of three other Rikers inmates this year that preceded Yehuda's each involved staffing breakdowns where correction staff either was not doing required rounds or simply was absent from the units when the detainees went into medical distress. The fourth Rikers inmate to die this year, 25-year-old Deshaun Carter, arrived at the jail without a mental health designation, noting he'd been on suicide watch just last year, according to records. Carter hanged himself in his cell in general population on May 7th. 16 inmates died in city custody last year. In today's feature report, Big Talk producer Michael Glab speaks with Cole Nelson, a graduate student at IU Media School and a member of the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition. Nelson talks about the life of a paid grad student and his wish for the union to be recognized. We turn now to that interview. is a grad student in the media school. And part of his research uh, deals with film and labor. He got his uh, undergraduate degree in film and digital media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Then he came here to do graduate work. And he happens to be one of the movers and shakers behind the Indiana University Grad Workers Coalition, which is now affiliated with the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America. They're trying to get organized. They're trying to get unionized here in Bloomington. But as I say, before we even get into that, let's find out about the life of a grad student. Cole, what is it you do? You get a paycheck from Indiana University. Why? Well, I I should just say my time here at uh, Indiana University started in 2019 as a graduate student. And as you may know, a few short months later, we were plunged into a global pandemic. So I would say I haven't had a, a very normal um, experience quite yet as a as a graduate student. The, the, the reasons I receive a paycheck from the university are manifold. I, I, with each passing semester, have a new uh, student academic appointment. So I can go from grading for uh, a, a faculty member's class 
to assisting and leading uh, discussion sections of, of uh, undergraduate students to, as is the case this semester for me, teaching and preparing my own class. And that's where it's sort of the uh, all-encompassing gig where I devise my syllabus, I teach uh, in-person classes, I do the grading, I design assignments, um, I facilitate conversations with my students. And that's, that's sort of the work that I've been doing this semester. It's, it's of course, the most intensive uh, jobs thus far that I've had, which means my, the amount of work that I've had to do this semester has increased from, from previous semesters significantly. Is this over and above the actual work that you have to do to get your graduate degree? This is, yes. My, my SAA appointment is, is separate from my uh, acquisition of, of a degree. So I'm, I'm wow. you know, this is one of, one of the points we're trying to really emphasize with the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition is that there is a contingent of students of graduate students at IU that are both students, full-time students, uh, and taking on the responsibilities of full-time students, as well as employees, working simultaneously in relationship with the university uh, in those two roles. Uh, so I, I, I both teach classes and I take classes. That's sort of the um, uh, nuts and bolts distinction there. As I see it, uh, there are about 10,000 total graduate students here at Indiana University. Mm -hmm. 2,500 of them are in your shoes. In other words, they get a paycheck for doing things similar to what you're doing. Now, it turns out that more than 1,600 of those paycheck grad students signed union cards recently. Is that a good figure, Cole? We're, we're closer to uh, 1750 at this point. Aha. Uh -huh. So what does this mean? Uh, is there a union now? Well, those 1750 graduate workers are acting and operating like a union, advocating for uh, themselves and the, uh, better working conditions. Uh, we recognize ourselves as a active uh, union here on campus. It's it's the university, um, it's the administration that refuses to recognize us. So it's at this point for us, it's simply a process of recognition. There's a overwhelming majority of graduate workers on campus who uh, not only seek to form a union, but are in the process of making that union themselves. Part of our activities as the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition is to put into an effect our union. Uh, but the labor dispute comes from the fact that the administration does not look to recognize that union. And they have every right to do that under Indiana state law. And I'm going to say that uh, the Indiana favorite son, Eugene V. Debs, uh, would be spinning in his grave to understand what labor law is like here in this state. Public employees, and certainly you are a public employee, you, you get your paycheck essentially from an arm of the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, public employees are not able to go on strike. They're not able to collectively bargain. And it's almost as if uh, it's a toothless union. We've, we've 
faced a, a common misconception for uh, a variety of graduate workers who are who are in my position, who are uh, public employees in the state of Indiana, uh, employed by uh, Indiana University, that we are not legally able to go on strike as public employees. And it turns out that is not, in fact, true. There's oh, a strange... please explain. Yeah. Sure, sure. Now, there is a general sanction in Indiana state law uh, against uh, striking as public sector employees. Oddly enough, and for whatever reason, I do not know, I, I'm not a legal historian, uh, especially in the state of Indiana, but as far as we can tell, there is, there is uh, a caveat for public employees at Indiana University who are employed through Indiana University. And of course, uh, we are exactly that. Now, maybe I was a little too hasty in uh, characterizing this union as toothless because right before you guys did go on strike, the university gave you guys a little bit of a raise. And I don't think that was a coincidence, do you? Oh, not, not at all, not in the slightest. So tell me about that. What, what, what were you making and what will you get with this raise? So the, the raise, it's, it's a little bit complicated and I also think that's uh, not a coincidence as well. Departments across campus that are not at a stipend floor of $18,000 a year um, will be raised to eighteen thousand uh, dollars. There's there's a handful of departments that that applies to that currently fall below that eighteen thousand dollar floor. I'm in one of them. The media school is currently receiving seventeen thousand dollars annually, and so this this raise brings us to eighteen thousand dollars. There is also an additional five percent raise that's applied to all departments across across campus. Uh, so whatever the 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 stipend was already, uh, and it varies from department to department, which which I could certainly get into the, those kind of um, concerns. Uh, but but for the time being, uh, the departments that had already met the the eighteen thousand dollar stipend floor are receiving an additional five percent raise. Now I'll note that this is only extended through the next year. Uh -huh. The central administration has guaranteed this raise for graduate workers uh, for one full year. Yeah. Um, and they've placed the responsibility in the hands of uh, the various departments to do what they can to ensure that that raise persists beyond uh, this, this next year period. Uh, do, you, do you feel, Cole Nelson, that the university was trying to take the wind out of your sails with this 5% increase and this raising of the floor? Yeah, I think, I think very much so. And in fact, uh, I would, I would characterize us as a fully, fully fanged union uh, and the, and the university uh, through this, through this raise was attempting to do a little surgical uh, operation and remove some of our, some of our teeth. Uh, and frankly, it, it didn't work.
Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Michael Glab. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Onyi Afwaku. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.